Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program of information on the ever-changing world of accessibility. Now here are the hosts of this program, Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy. Hello, I'm Nancy. And I'm Pete. A while back, we talked with the archivist of the American Foundation for the Blind about putting together the Helen Keller archives. This week, we'll be talking with some people who actually digitized and restored some of the old audio of Helen Keller talking. We'll speak with Jane Kronheim and Roger Chikese, who are audio engineers who specialize in restoring old audio. We'll get to hear some of these old recordings of Helen Keller and others as we speak with Jane and Roger about their work and share some fun stories. But first for the tip of the week. This week's tip is that although Jane and Roger are audio engineers, we didn't really spend much time talking to them about what's involved in audio production. So if you want to learn about that, you can listen to back episodes of Eyes on Success. And we've done a number of previous episodes where we talked with audio engineers and producers to talk about their craft and how they do it. And if you put the word production into the search field of our website, you'll find a list of all those shows. And we've explored several aspects of audio production. And all of the audio engineers we've talked to have had visual impairments themselves. So they've been using these tools with adaptive technology. Support for Eyes on Success is made possible by Logan Tech, makers of the electronic take-anywhere six-dot braille label maker that produces crisp, clear braille that strikes, scores, and cuts in seconds. More information on our family of devices and products is at logantech.com. Logan Tech, improving quality of life with technology. Let's start by meeting Roger and Jane and learning about their company, Voices of Experience. My name is Jane Kronheim, and I'm the president of Voices of Experience, located here in Harrisville, New Hampshire. Roger? I'm the guy who presses the buttons, does a lot of voice work, which is also shared by Jane. And I'm kind of on the technical side of things, so literally conceiving how the studio would be set up, acquiring most of the equipment, installing it, setting it up, testing it, and keeping it working. Although uh, I also am fortunate to, as is Jane, fortunate to have the services of a fantastic technician that we work with on many different projects. Can you give a quick summary of the kinds of projects that you guys work on? The kinds of projects that we work on really fall into probably three categories. Format transfers, which means transferring all kinds of various material from pretty much no longer used formats like uh, recordings made on 78s, 45s, or 33 LPs, old talking book records, two-track or four-track audio cassettes, quarter-track, half-track, four-track, reel-to-reel tapes, and we even have a working wire recorder in our studio. The second area is live recording, which might be here in the studio or on location. Third area is production, 
which might or might not actually involve live recording, but it might be putting a production together that would include original music or sound effects or scripted material that needs to be mixed with other voices. I would say probably half of the work we do is the format transfer stuff. And that also usually involves not only simply transferring material from one format to another, but it invariably involves cleaning up the sound of that material where possible and making it more listenable. Most of our listeners have visual impairments. I gather one of you does and one of you doesn't? That's right. Yes. I am fully sighted. Roger is uh, totally blind. And I'm also severely hearing impaired. Actually, in the past six years, I've become increasingly hearing impaired. And because technology sometimes is really wonderful, I've managed to stay in the recording game by um, acquiring state-of-the-art hearing aids that are actually designed for musicians and sound engineers. They have a lot of very unusual features and functions, and unfortunately, one of the most unusual of them is the price. So I understand that, among other things, you, Roger, as a deafblind individual, narrate audiobooks. Is that correct? I do. You must be a lot better Braille reader than I am. That would never fly if I was reading the Braille. <laughs> well, the trick is uh, very simply this. You don't have to read fast, although there are some Braille readers who can read fast. The trick is to be comfortable reading out loud, the second thing is you have to be comfortable with reading material, and I try to make myself as familiar with material as I can, usually reading it over several times before I start trying to attempt to record it, and Jane does the same thing. Well, that would certainly help. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. This week's focus topic is Jane and Roger's experiences reformatting and editing audio recordings from the American Foundation for the Blind and other interesting sources. So how did you come to get involved in the AFB's archive project and working on those audio files of Helen Keller? In our business, we hear from a lot of different people with requests. And over time, there have been people who... Uh, we're fascinated with, of course, Helen Keller and her voice. But one of the requests that came through a lot was the desire to hear her reading the 23rd Psalm. So uh, as a result of that, I thought, well, maybe the people that would really know about this best would be American Foundation for the Blind, uh, which she worked for for 40 years. And I was aware that there is, of course, the Helen Keller archivist, Helen Selton. Right, and we recently did a show where we interviewed Helen Selston. We were in New York City, and we went to the AFB, and that was just fascinating. And she gave us a personal tour of the archives. It was great. And for anybody who's interested, that was show number 1718. It was wonderful, and uh, we both listened to that interview. When I contacted Helen in a, an email correspondence with her, I said, we have a complete audio studio here, you know, at my residence in Harrisville, New Hampshire, where we do this kind of work, to which Helen Selson responded, wow. <laughs> but what I didn't know, and she later shared, was that they were about to launch this huge digitization 
project on the Helen Keller archives. Um, what you listeners may not know is there are approximately 30 audio items. And most of those audio items are either about Helen Keller herself or about the American Foundation for the Blind and her relationship with them. And so what we ended up working on was those 30 or so rare recordings, everything from the 23rd Psalm, which we mentioned, and if you'd like, I could play it for your listeners. What do you think about that? I think this is a good time. Oh, please do. That would be great. Okay. The 23rd Psalm from the Book of Psalms in the Old Testament, one that most people are familiar with. You know, it starts with the Lord is my shepherd. But those who are listening, don't expect perfect quality speech. Um, Helen Keller was not comfortable with her speaking voice, and you'll understand why. But please do listen carefully. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He made it me to lie down immediately in the pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Besides her being totally deaf and therefore not having the clearest speech, I understand that was recorded a very long time ago on some very, shall we say, unsophisticated equipment. Actually, the original recording and the one we got, we got two versions, but the best, believe it or not, the best quality one was recorded on a spool of very fine, almost hair-fine copper wire. Because in those days, way before cassettes, way before reel-to-reel tape, was wire recordings. And with the package of all of the materials we got from AFB was this spool of wire. And we actually have probably one of the few studios that has a working wire recorder. And so what you heard was copied from that spool of wire on our wire recorder. I wanted to add something. This is an interesting tidbit. These materials were so fragile that uh, Helen Selston, the archivist, and her husband literally drove the materials to us from New York. And then they stayed here overnight. At a, We met each other, talked with each other, and they drove back. I don't know if we had told you this. Wow. I hope they didn't hit any potholes. Well, if they did, it didn't damage the recordings beyond where they were already damaged. Um, about the only thing I can say is none of the recordings were in pieces. No, but some of them say. were pretty close to it. Well, that sounds like there was quite an effort to get those things restored. So, Roger, I understand you have a personal connection to Helen Keller. My connection with Helen Keller is that Number one, she and I both attended Perkins School for the Blind and graduated from Perkins. Second of all, I sang at Helen Keller's funeral at the Washington Cathedral in the chorus in 1968. And a year later, I was invited to participate with five other people in a memorial service at the American Foundation for the Blind, where we were invited to sing some special hymns on her behalf a year after her passing. Now, there also must have been a fair amount of audio processing that went on to clean that up, because it sounded relatively clean. There were some scratches in there. Can you tell us 
a little bit about the process that goes on in cleaning such an audio recording up? If you were to come into the studio, among all the other bizarre stuff you'd see here, turntables and lots of reel-to-reel machines and stuff, we have two almost floor-to-ceiling racks at each end of a large table that contains our mixing console and three turntables. At each end of that table are two racks that are almost floor-to-ceiling filled mostly with patch bays, that's the units that are used to connect various items, and audio processing gear. To process the LPs or album-like materials that were provided to us and this wire recording, although we used several different devices, the most unusual item we use is something called a pack burn. It is made by a company in the States, It's a very unusual and very expensive processing device that sort of looks for the best sounding bits. And it lifts up the sound of some, lowers down the sound of others, compresses some things, expands others. And what you end up doing is, as the engineer, you sit and play with the controls on the front of this device until you get the very best sound when the processor is doing operating all of its different stages it gets kind of technical from here but that enables us to do things with sound that is almost i would say almost miraculous you mentioned earlier that you had some other really interesting archival recordings can you talk about that the best one we have here isn't the helen keller one that you just heard but the first described video that was done in 1937 from the Snow White movie that was unplayable. Here is the before of the Snow White DVD that we've uh, developed. The wicked queen is so jealous of Snow White's beauty that she made her wear rags and do all the hard work about the castle. She made her wash the dishes and mop the floor and even scrub the steps of the castle. And then you went and cleaned it up. Can we hear what that sounds like? That she made her wear rags and do all the hard work about the castle. She made her wash the dishes and mop the floor, and even scrub the steps of the castle. See the difference? That's quite a difference. Yeah, you can actually understand it. And the scratchiness is much less. The pack burn was very, very useful in that recording, along with a piece of uh, equipment made by a company that's no longer in business called DBX. They made a lot of sound processing equipment, and we have a lot of their devices in our um, processing rack as well. So I have two questions about the cleaning up process here. Sure. I know a lot of audio engineers will use software programs like Sonar, Audacity, Goldwave, and other things to clean up Mm -hmm. audio like that. And you've used a couple of audio hardware devices here. And I'm wondering, you know, if you can compare the two, what are the benefits and drawbacks of doing it either way? Oh, boy. Uh, That's like Braille watches and talking watches. Part of it is preference. Part of it is ease of use. But I have to tell you that we also have Goldwave, Audacity. We like Studio Recorder because it's powerful but simple and doesn't have any plugins. We can use our external devices. We are in the process of acquiring Sonar, which is a pretty popular and very powerful and flexible piece of software. That's what we're using to record this interview. 
And so I assume you're you using the uh, JAWS package that makes Sonar more accessible? We do. I use the uh, JSONAR scripts to run Sonar myself, and I actually contributed to some of the scripts, which was kind of fun. Do you prefer working in the digital or the audio domain? You know, there's pluses and minuses. We like them both. We like the analog and the digital domain. And the truth is, some rare analog devices, like one thing that we use called the Ranger or the Stereo Enhancer, is something you can't even recreate in the digital domain. Uh, so that there's some rare stuff out there, and we, we go after whatever we can to give people quality that they can't otherwise get. I was wondering with these hardware devices, it's always nice to have knobs and buttons and sliders that you can actually touch and feel when sometimes software may not be accessible. But on the other hand, sometimes they don't give you feedback as to what the settings are and you know you may not be able to read meters. Is that an issue with these hardware devices? It is. In fact, the mixer that we use, which is a, a ProMix 01, it works great. There are many, many features on it that are not accessible. I've had to memorize menu settings and kind of, you know, write down the order in which things appear. And sometimes I have to play and fiddle a little bit, even though there are knobs and buttons that make it do things. And unfortunately, the more up to date the digital equipment is, the less accessible it becomes. However, if you use MIDI, which is an interface that's more commonly used now with musical instruments, but if you make a MIDI connection between some of these modern mixers and a computer running a powerful screen reader like JAWS, it actually creates quite a new level of accessibility and makes them more usable. You guys have worked on an awful lot of different projects. What do you think was the most unusual one? There were several old <laughs> recordings that didn't meet the standards that yeah. were eventually developed for playback. And some of the recordings that we had to work with, you start from the inside near the label and play out to the edge of the disc instead of the opposite way. Wow. Go figure. That reminds me of the old recording Monty Python made with three sides. Did you ever hear of that one? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've had it. Matching Tie and Hanky was the album. Right. They had interlacing <laughs> tracks on one side, mm -hmm. and it all depended on which track it started on, and it seemed like the record had three sides. <laughs> That was a really fun recording to play with, and I'll just tell you that the turntables that are needed to play records that play from the inside out, automatic turntables reject the arm every time you tried to put it on the inside of that track. <laughs> so we actually had to disable the automatic feature on a turntable we were using so the arm wouldn't lift up as soon as we tried to drop the needle. Oh, how funny. What I'm saying. Yeah. Great. So how did you guys get started in this whole field of cleaning up audio recordings and making things sound a lot better? We come at it from very different approaches. I mean, I've always been interested in electronics and radio and broadcasting, and I grew up working in my parents' movie theater, learning how to do the sound when I was eight years old, became an amateur radio operator when I was 12, got my first lucky job in broadcasting when I was 17, but in terms of doing what we're talking about, in 1986, I formed my own recording company and began to do projects like this and did them for about 20 years. The company was called Soundcraft. I closed that business in 2006 thinking I would never do this work professionally again. 
But several years later, Jane had been one of my customers in the early days of Soundcraft uh, when she was writing and recording stories that went along with some of her products. And unlike her to tell you how Voices of Experience came to be, and we started doing this work because she was really instrumental in making that happen. Jane? Yes. When Roger and I reconnected around uh, eight or nine years ago, I simply said to him, what are you doing with all that stuff that you had for radio and broadcast? So I invited him to bring a lot of it up here. I said I live in a very quiet place in New Hampshire, very much off the road in the woods. I bet we can do a lot of recording work here as well as helping other people to do format transfers. And so we started with this equipment, and gradually over time we've added to it. And we've done a, a lot of projects, probably well over 100 or 200 projects. The thing you need to know is that Jane has worked in the vision field for over 40 years as a teacher of the visually impaired. So this studio idea started out as an avocation for her, which she hoped, if it could pay off, could eventually become her only uh, endeavor when she would kind of move away from the TVI work. And that's sort of what's beginning to happen now. What I'd really like to share with the two of you was way back in the day in the 80s when I was in the Boston area and I did some work at Perkins School for the Blind, we started a preschool program. So I used to look around for just the right kind of products to use with these kids. And at the time, I invented uh, a multi-sensory product called Learning Pillows. And I wrote all the stories for them. So it hit me one day that maybe I should record these stories. So at the time, the Mass Association for the Blind had these little, tiny, little, narrow recording booths, which were all reel-to-reel recording. So I went in there with my auto harp and all my sound effects and my script. But the problem was when I would stop and click and I had mouthing sounds and, you know, you, it picked up everything. I then, of course, knew Roger. And when he had his business Soundcraft, I said, hey, can you help to edit all the mistakes and the coughs and the wheezes and pops and sounds in here? And so that was my very first experience uh, when I was recording stories for myself for this product. And then Roger did all the editing out of those noises. So that's a huge diversity of projects that the two of them have worked on. And isn't it fantastic that they were able to help out the AFB with their archiving and digitization project. Normally at this point, we would play our regular breaker tune, but instead we are going to play a short clip of Roger and the choir singing at Helen Keller's funeral. Now, for this week's final item, how to reach Jane Kronheim and Roger Chikese at Voices of Experience. So if people wanted to find out more about Voices of Experience and contact you people for some audio restorations or other projects, how would they do that? The two best ways are to call us at area code 603-827-3859. That's Area code 603-827-3859. That's in Harrisville, New Hampshire. Or they can email us at the number one nation under sound, no capitals, no spaces, at gmail.com. That's the number one, not the word one, nation 
undersound at gmail.com. And um, we really enjoy talking with people. Email's good, it's convenient, but we would almost rather have some people call us. Do you have a website where people can see some examples of the kind of work you've done? Yeah, you can go to www.voicesofexperience.com and it comes up. It has also some audio selections uh, that people can choose and listen to and it fully describes on the website all the different kinds of projects that we can do. Can you spell Voices of Experience for our listeners because you don't spell that the normal way? Sure. It's Voices, V-O-I-C-E-S of and experience starts with X-P-E-R-I-E-N-C-E. And do you have a social media presence? We are not putting a lot of energy or time into the web for other kinds of outreach. I will tell you, though, that uh, because I'm the president of this company, I am on LinkedIn, and when I've established my Facebook page, which I go on occasionally, I do tell people about this. And you talked about learning pillows. Is that still available? Those were produced 35 years ago, and they're still really fun and interesting. I'm still getting requests for these, by the way. Just in the past month, I got several requests from the United States and Canada and one from England recently where they were reading about them on a literacy website that Perkins School for the Blind promotes. Oh, what fun. What's that website called, Jane? Do you remember? Paths to Literacy. I'll tell you this one little funny tidbit that years ago when somebody was asking me for information, they made a mistake in their typewriter and they called them yearning pillows. <laughs> Close. <laughs> That's funny. I had picked out something rather strange and unusual. It is a song that was written in 1954 and it actually showed up in the package of materials we got from AFB. And it's a song about Helen Keller. Oh. It's called The Ballad of Helen Keller. Can you play part of that for us? I have a song for you. All the world knows it is true. About a lady fair Whose accomplishments are rare Helen Keller is her name A woman of great fame To touch the human heart Is Helen Keller's art Now I wonder how many listeners are familiar with that old tune. Anyway, if you're looking for any of that contact information that we talked about in the show, as usual, you can go to the show notes for this episode at www.eyesonsuccess.net. That's it for show number 1735. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be talking about tips for technology and daily living. Back by popular demand, this episode is another in the series of useful tips and tricks that you might or might not have known about. We'll share ideas and demos that were submitted from listeners, as well as from the two of us, on topics ranging from using smartphones and computers to dealing with everyday life. There's sure to be a gem in here for everyone. 
If you have any questions regarding something you've heard about on the show or you'd like to share an idea for a future show, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net or call us at 585-210-8094. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy and distributed by WXXI Reach Out Radio. Browse the full archive of programs, find instructions for subscribing to the podcasts, and much more at www.tiesonsuccess.net. You can also find us on iTunes, follow us on Facebook and on Audioboom.com, at Eyes on Success, or Twitter at underscore Eyes on Success. We hope you will join us again next week for more information and updates on products for accessible living. Thanks for listening to Eyes on Success and have a nice day.